the most honest place on the planet is your pillow. The pillow never lies. When you put your head on that pillow at night and you reflect on your day, that's where people will beat themselves up. They will have a 12 round fight with themselves before they go to bed at night. And they wonder why they wake up sometimes feeling exhausted and tired because they, they ended the day very poorly. That's Todd Herman, best-selling author of The Alter Ego Effect. Now I want the smiling pillow effect. I want the people that come in contact with me or my stuff or my training or my coaching, whatever the case is, I want them to go to bed at night going, I might not have gotten the result, but damn it, I left it out there. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp Video, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Todd Herman to discuss how to embrace challenges with resilience, how to transform from living in an ordinary world to an extraordinary world, and why channeling your imagination to create an alter ego will empower you to rise to any occasion. I disassociated from my own trauma, disassociated from my own narrative about what Todd can go and do. And I use those glasses as my totem, my artifact, or my uniform to step into this new identity. And is that me being fake? No. The other version of me that wasn't making the calls was being actually fake because I had the capabilities, but I wasn't taking the action. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Todd Herman is the founder and CEO of Herman Global Ventures and the best-selling author of The Alter Ego Effect, The Power of Secret Identities to Transform Your Life. He's coached thousands of professional athletes and high-powered executives to achieve their most ambitious goals, helping them become more resilient, creative, confident, and courageous. We began our conversation by answering the question, what exactly is the alter ego effect? The alter ego effect is this amazing phenomenon that occurs that kind of runs counter to what most people think when it comes to developing yourself and finding that best version of you and really trying to find that individuality, which is that people who employ an alter ego, secret identity, extra persona, whatever someone wants to call it, end up finding more of who they are. That's the actual effect. That's why the subtitle of the book is The Power of Secret Identities to Transform Your Life. You know, throughout the book, there's just so many examples and cases where people get so caught up in their own story and their own narrative about who they are and, you know, where they come from and all those things end up trapping people. And um, the reality is that human beings, we have all sorts of qualities, abilities, traits that we have available to us but what ends up happening is, is we, because of this story and this narrative of who we think we are, we end up acting through the exact same person over and over again, telling us stories about what we think we can and cannot do. And the alter ego is the thing that just allows these abilities to more freely come out of you so that you can truly kind of lead the life that you most want. And for the people listening, I mean, just to be clear, this isn't about pretending or faking it till you make it, right? Well, I mean, faking it till you make it, it's just, I mean, words matter, right? Like fake till you make it, who likes that idea? However, 
there is no one specific perfect definition of how you want to use it. If you want to use this so that you can pretend yourself into something, there is nothing wrong with that whatsoever. You know, like there's all these really crappy social narratives that are out there. Most of it very recently because the word authenticity or authentic self has become this real platitude or this posturing device that people like to use to um, maybe signal to other people, well, that's just me being authentic. The reality is you don't even know how authentic you could be. And there's no one you anyway. There's so many different versions of us available to us. So pretending isn't a bad thing. That's why so many people that get in the world of acting through the course of them taking on different roles and playing different characters, oftentimes it's extraordinarily transformative for them. They end up using these different characters that they've played to find more of what they like, dislike, more of who they are. And if you can give some examples, I mean, just either athletes or business leaders or performers like that, that basically utilize alter egos to be more successful. Well, I've been doing this for since 1997. I started my performance company and it was in around 2003 that I discovered this common link between the top performers that I was working with, Olympians, pro athletes, they would all use the idea or say, you know, this alter ego I have or the secret identity, there's persona that I use when I go out onto the field. And that's when I started going, wait a second, this is an actual mechanism. It's a model that people are using to truly perform to the level that they most desire. So I started building out the model on how you actually use this. One great example that people are extremely familiar with, unfortunately passed away a year and a bit ago, Kobe Bryant. But why did he? He didn't come into the league with the Black Mamba. It wasn't what he used in the high school to get drafted into the NBA. What happened was he was going through an extraordinarily challenging time where he felt like he was losing, in his words, losing his edge. And that was when he was going through the sexual assault trial in Colorado. And he was now losing a part of his identity. And so where he got inspired to use the Black Mamba was he was watching the movie Kill Bill. And there's a scene in the movie Kill Bill when the Black Mamba snake comes on and he sat back and he thought, wait a second, that's what I need to go and use when I'm out on the court. Something that doesn't care, has zero emotion whatsoever. And then he did the next step, which I kind of talk about in the book, which is he went and learned everything that there is to know about a black mama snake. I mean, he knows more about the black mama snake than most biologists know about the snake. And why that's important is, is because we have this emotional brain that attaches story and meaning to things, when you get to know something better, it's so much easier for you to activate the traits, the abilities, or even care about the thing right? It's the classic. I mean, I remember when I was in the mid 2000s, I, I used to really dislike Terrell Owens, former wide receiver in the NFL. And I work with pro athletes, but I just didn't like him. And then I saw this documentary on him done by the NFL. It was about a 15 minute long special. And it talked about his upbringing, his grandmother, how he ended up getting shaping into who he was. And I was like, oh, damn, now I really like Terrell Owens. So same thing. But to my point about acting, I don't know if you've watched, have you watched the movie about Mr. Rogers with Tom Hanks playing Mr. Rogers? Yep. Okay. So he was doing an interview with Jimmy Kimmel, um, the late night show host. And uh, he was being very honest saying, I actually kind of thought that I didn't really know much about Fred Rogers, but it kind of felt like he was a bit of a kook, a bit of an odd guy. But in preparation for the role, like any good actor, I watched 76 episodes of Won't You Be My Neighbor? So Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And so he got to really know and understand like what the mission of this man was on. And he said in the interview, when you put on that red sweater and blue shoes, 
you feel powerful. It's like putting on Batman's cape and cowl, which gets to, I'm sure, one of the things we're going to talk about later, the power of totems, artifacts, and, and some of the science behind this stuff. But there's just far too many. And, and these alter egos don't just reserve themselves for people that are athletes or entertainers. They run the gamut across leaders, public figures, salespeople, you name it. And you know, you're dealing with individuals that whether or not they're people who stand in court or not, but they wear many, many different hats, which means there's many roles that you need to play. And most often I find working with different people who are ambitious, which has to be the people that are listening because you couldn't be ambitious if you weren't listening to a podcast that helped you become a better person is that you're under indexing in a lot of areas. And that's because of your identity. Once you learn how to shape your identity and you play that way, you're unstoppable. It's the ultimate trump card in the world of transformation is knowing how to adjust your identity. While Todd's results can speak for themselves, some people may challenge his ideas about enclosed cognition to simply be make-believe. I asked Todd how he addresses the skeptics. Yeah, so I mean, to the skeptic, um, that's why in the book, I just unpack all the science behind this. And then on the other side too, is that this is something that's been talked about for millennia. In fact, the term alter ego was first coined by Cicero, the greatest Roman statesman and philosopher to ever live, widely known as being basically number one. And in 44 BC, in a letter to a friend, when he was unpacking kind of the secrets to his success, essentially, he t was the first one to actually say alter ego. And it, what it means in its root form is the other I or trusted friend within. And why that's important is we all know, you and I know this, that, and we were talking earlier before we even started this, mutual friends that we have, the amazing allies that we have around us, could be mentors, could be coaches, could be friends. We all know that when you improve the quality of the people you have around you, you improve yourself. And it sure is an unfair advantage when you get to ping on friends who can solve a huge problem for you with one phone call, one text message, or an email, right? Now, the thing is though, I don't have these friends around me 24 seven, but what I do live with 24 seven is the six inches between my ears. It's the person within, it's the voice within. And so that idea that you have trusted friends or allies between the six inches of your ears is a very useful and practical way to use your brain. And what it also leverages is the fact that our brains are dedicated 70% roughly to the visual cortex. That's why we're very visual beings. And an alter ego becomes a mental model, an image that you can hold in your mind for what you're trying to move towards. You're not trying to exactly copy it whatsoever. And if you did, I don't really care. What I care about is, are you getting results that you want? Everyone's so caught up. I mean, you think I give two shits whether someone feels I'm being inauthentic because I know that my alter ego is Mr. Rogers? when I'm around my kids, do you know how easy it would be for me to continuously act through the identity that I have right now? I'm a tough guy. I coach some of the biggest names on the planet. They've got massive egos and I need their ship to sometimes crash on the rock of our coaching because I need to break down that hard exterior and they have it for a reason because they've got nothing but people around them who want stuff from them. That's why as a rule, and you know this, says on the very first page of my book, I do not name any of my private clients in the book. You'll never get them out of me. None of the publishers got it out of me. I need 100% complete trust from them. So my point is, so all day long, I'm flexing this muscle, the habit 
of this guy who's a challenger to clients because I'm trying to drag them to their next milestone, which if they could do it on their own, they could go do it on their own, but they want to get there through speed and optimization. But is that really me? Is that the only me that's available to this human being that's here right now? Of course it's not. And is that me, the challenger guy, best suited to be around my children, my three little kids, Molly, Sophie, and Charlie, eight, six, and four? Do they want challenger dad? No. So in my mind, I have this alter ego, this representation of who would I most like to be when I'm around my kids? And Mr. Rogers sits there for me, caring, kind, compassionate, patient, thoughtful, communicative, fun, creative. I think those are eight qualities that would be fantastic to be around for my kids so I can help them and not force them, help them be more of what they can end up becoming. Now, that's not me being fake. That's me recognizing that the human condition is a bit of a tangled web sometimes. And I'm simply employing the stuff that the elite use. So I really, frankly, Michael, I'm not here to really sell the alter ego concept. You can either use it or not use it. But here's what I know. If you don't use this thing as a tool in your toolbox, you're just operating way slower than the people who are at the very, very tippy top. So I know early in the book, when you get into how to actually leverage the power of, of one's alter ego, you talk about the importance of knowing yourself. So like your desires, your aspirations, dreams, intrinsic motivators, and you really break this down into four layers, right? That surround our core selves. If, if you could expand on that. Yeah. I talk about this kind of field of play model that we all operate inside of. At the very core of us is this sort of unlimited set of traits, qualities, and attributes, right? Like when we're born, we don't automatically come out as being cynical or pessimistic or something like that. Like somehow that was trained into us environmentally. It was habitual in some ways, whatever. But at our core, we have all of these different qualities. There's a creative person inside of the person that's listening to this. Whether or not you employ it or not, based on the actions and behaviors and attitudes you have, that's up to you. But that's still, it's there. It's just that it's trapped in there. And then outside of that, is we have this layer where we're very much influenced by the things outside of us. It could be what we're attached to is our religion, our country, the group that we're a part of, police officers, firemen, army. This is sort of our, this core layer that really influences us almost privately, like behind the scenes. We don't even see that it's there. And then beyond that layer is the layer of habits, beliefs, and attitudes. And these are very much unconscious to us, but they really filter the world in a way that creates new perceptions for us. And then we get to the layer of action. And these are our behaviors, our knowledge that we've accumulated. And then finally, we get to the field of play, which is where we interact with the world around us. And all of these layers can end up becoming, for me and for others, they can end up helping to actually find where you might have where you might trip up, where you might have some pitfalls, where you might have some areas that you could improve. But they also become really helpful in that if you feel like you're living, because then the next level of this is all of these can either create an ordinary world or an extraordinary world. Some people are living in an ordinary world. How you know you're living in an ordinary world is you're not getting the results basically that you want. You're not pursuing the things that you are wanting to pursue. You're not showing up in the world like you most want to show up. A great example of this, I share it in the book, is Michael, when you're standing around with a group of friends and um, someone comes into the group or someone who's already in the group says something in a cutting or demeaning way to your friend, and then you don't say something, 
in that moment, you end up beating yourself up later on. Why? Because it was something that you dishonored at your very core. You didn't act through that core part of you. And that's how you know you're living in an ordinary world or you're not speaking up when you're inside of a, a board meeting. You have the intention of making the phone calls to maybe get some more clients today, but you didn't do it at the end of your day. That's why I say like the most honest place on the planet, the most honest place on the planet is your pillow. The pillow never lies. When you put your head on that pillow at night and you reflect on your day, that's where people will beat themselves up. They will have a 12 round fight with themselves before they go to bed at night. And they wonder why they wake up sometimes feeling exhausted and tired because they, they ended the day very poorly. Now I want the smiling pillow effect. I want the people that come in contact with me or my stuff or my training or my coaching, whatever the case is, I want them to go to bed at night going, I might not have gotten the result, but damn it, I left it out there. Like I did it, I pulled the trigger. I did the thing that I wanted to go and do. That's an ordinary world. And then conversely, so this ordinary world can create based on whether or not you're not doing the things you want to do, you're not pursuing the things you want to be doing. You've got some beliefs about yourself and what you think you can do or can't do. You've got some habits that aren't supporting you. You've got some groups that you're a part of that are somehow stifling you in some way. Oh, I'm doing it because mom and dad want me to. And all this ends up creating what's called a trapped self. It's not just because it's a good term. I named it a trapped self because that's the number one most common way that people have articulated to me what it feels like to not be showing up in the world like they most want. Conversely, the extraordinary world, it's not that it's bubblegum, gumdrops, and daisies. It's the same situations and circumstances a lot of times that you're throwing yourself into or getting, you're getting involved with. But the reason it's extraordinary is it's an inside-out approach. You're deciding how you want to show up. And when you do that, you end up feeling heroic. That's why it's the trapped self versus the heroic self. And so that's all well and good, Todd. Sounds kind of similar to some of the stuff I've heard in maybe some self-help books, but the trick for me that allowed me to work with people so fast and allow them to transform quickly was the alter ego. The alter ego was the way to pull that heroic self out into the extraordinary world. And that's because it uses the creative imagination, which is the polar opposite to the world of resistance. Creative imagination is truly our mega superpower as, as an animal on this planet. Nothing else on this planet has the creative imagination that we do. We can create heavens from hell and hells from heaven. And a creative imagination is this amazing backdoor to the world of peak performance. And, and a lot of this also seems that it's about self-awareness and intentionality. You mentioned that in coaching thousands of like elite athletes and entrepreneurs, you realize that the one thing you really can't coach is motivation. Why is that? Because uh, motivation is, um, A, it's a, mo a very misunderstood term. Motivation, people think that it is a feeling and it's not, that's not what motivation is in its root form. Again, like this is the problem with society. We're even seeing it with a lot of the, the social justice stuff that happens nowadays. People take terms, they co-opt it, they make it mean something else. And now people are just talking out of their ass and they're not experts on these subjects. And so motivation in its root form means mode of action, which means it's the way it's the tool that you use to get your ass moving. So the best of the best, the tool that the best of the best use typically to get themselves moving is what? Coaching and mentorship. I mean, I'm not doing it because I'm selling it. I don't care if I get a client from this. It's not what I'm here for. But I'm just saying, why? Because it is the outside effect 
of a powerful, phenomenal coach that can rip into you and pull out of you the best version of you. That's why the best of the best use them. And so it's mode of action. But I can't coach someone on the term that other people mean when it comes to motivation, which is desire. I can't coach your desire. You either want it or you don't want it. And I ain't here to waste my time on someone who's like, oh, I really want to make it as a pro, you know, insert the butt. No, you don't want it. You don't want it. I got another book that I'm working on. I got like a a series of books that that will be coming out. And uh, the title is uh, Struggles, Scrapes, and Scars. The only path to success in life. Because if you're not willing to seek out struggle, get the scrapes and earn the scars, you ain't doing the work. Like that's the most valuable part of any month, week, or day. Like when you reflect back on 2020 and you look at some of the struggles you had to go through, some people just sit in the struggle. That's where they stop. They just sit in the struggle. And then some people move from struggle and they get the scrapes. But then some people even stop there. It's like, no, no, no. You need to move through the scrapes so that the scar can actually heal, which means you got to make the loop. You got to come through. And so, no, you got, you got to want it. You got to want the broken glass. You got to want to get punched in the face. You got to want it all. And the moment you make that switch, like I've seen it happen with people when they make the switch and they realize, oh man, no, no, no. Me with all this negative association with like, oh, it's not supposed to be this hard. It's like, who cares if it is this hard? Man, like the value, the sinew, the muscle that you're earning because of this gives you broader shoulders, which means you get to carry a heavier load, which means you get to do bigger and better things. Man, I want a lot of those people out there. You also talk about like the four core motivators, right? So trauma, destiny, altruism, and self-expression, if you could elaborate on those. Yeah, so trauma. One of the things that drives a lot of our behavior is the things that we didn't ask for, but happened to us. You know, I'm very open and honest about the traumas that that happened to me as a young kid. I was 12 years old. I'm a super outgoing guy. And I was growing up on this farm and ranch in Western Canada. And any chance I could go off and go to a, a camp during the summertime, just so I could go and meet other people, I'd be there. So one week I could be a Christian, the next week I could be a Catholic, and then the next week I could be a Pentecostal. It didn't matter to me as long as I could go off to a camp. So unfortunately, though, when I was 12, I was at a camp and over the course of a couple of days, I was abused and raped by two men while I was there. And that was not my world. I had phenomenal parents, phenomenal family life. I didn't see any of this kind of stuff. And so it wrecked me as a kid. Definitely sort of tore a fabric in my relationship with my own family, even though they didn't know that it happened. And I kept this private for you know 30 years, essentially. And that really drove a lot of my decision-making, drove a lot of my behavior, drove a lot of the way that I operated in the world. But I'm not the only one. Many other people have traumas as well, and it, and it shapes some of them. You know, this other driver of altruism, wanting to pursue the absolute best version of yourself, to actualize yourself in some way, to be on a mission for something that's bigger than you is a huge part of what makes people advance forward. And then your social world as well, and your family and, and the people that you've attached your name to is another thing that drives, it's the tribal type thing. Like we're, we're doing it because of other people. But these are all 
really powerful motivators that get people when you really start to unpack them, you can use them in both positive ways or they can end up trapping you as well. Because just like everything in the world, water, I've got a big jug of it right here. Water is a good thing. No one really typically argues that water is a bad, a bad thing. But if you drink a couple gallons of water in an hour, now you've got hyperhydration and you're going to drown because of it. And same thing goes with all of these motivators. Too much becomes too toxic for you. It, it ends up trapping you in some way. And throughout the book, you talk about this concept of the enemy. You talk about like common forces and hidden forces and then just ways to pull the enemy from the shadows. Like, what do you mean by the enemy and, and essentially how do you manage that? Yeah. I mean, the enemy comes in a few different forms, but in its kind of root form, it's that ego within. You know, that's why the alter ego, that's where the two come together. And the enemy within it, the enemy can be an old story from the past. The enemy can be a bully from the past for you as well. But the enemy is essentially that story or those set of behaviors and, and habits that get in the way of you pursuing the thing that you most really want in life. And in the book, I talk about, you know, from a, a mental standpoint, name the enemy. Because the moment you give something in the human mind, form and substance, it's the classic. I don't know if you've watched many horror films. I actually can't watch them because my, my imagination is a little bit too wild, but I've seen enough of them to know. The scariest part of that movie is that basically 10 minute mark to about the 50 minute mark where you don't know what's hunting anybody. Uh, you don't even know what it looks like. You don't know how to kill the damn thing. And that's because it has no form and it has no substance. But the moment that the thing comes into light, the moment it, you've seen it for the first time, you go, oh, that's what it looks like. It's no longer as scary. And so just carrying that kind of narrative into this world of managing your own psychology, name that enemy within, give it a name. What does it look like so that you can talk back to it? Because we're already talking in our own heads. Most of it is a, I call it the merry-go-round effect in the book. It's just circular. We just beat ourselves up. We go nowhere because of it. But the moment we turn it into a tennis match, you, whether it's the alter ego or whether it's just this best version of yourself, the heroic self, talking back to the enemy within, now you've bifurcated it from your own idea of yourself and you've moved it into another quadrant in your own head so that you can have a way more positive conversation and constructive as well. Todd argues that the preconceptions we have about ourselves and our abilities can get in the way of achieving our goals. And even seemingly good values like fairness can unconsciously become obstacles. We have many roles that we play in life, right? Like Michael, you're a quasi new dad. You know, you've got a two and a half year old and you got a, a one week old right now. And I still think that in some ways I'm a new dad, even though my oldest is eight. So we have these different roles that we play. And in order for us to win, on these different fields that we have, there's you know a certain playbook that's going to help us win. And one of the tennis players that I was unpacking in the book, I just started working with her and uh, she was the classic case of someone that had just phenomenal skill, all the commentators. She was kind of one of the people that should be winning major championships, but wasn't. And that was kind of the argument against her. And when you watched her play, she would classically get out to a really hot start she would just be like burying people. And then she would take her foot off the proverbial gas and she would start to let them get back in the game. And momentum in sport, just like in life, is just one of the ultimate equalizers. Because once you get momentum, momentum breeds confidence and confidence can breed certainty. And once you have someone who's less of a player than you feel certain that they can beat you, 
That's where they can start getting into the zone and the flow state. That's where this attitude comes in, this bravado. And all of a sudden they're playing beyond their own capabilities and they can upset you. Well, that's what happened to my client. And so we were sitting down at this uh, breakfast place in New York City. I love to go to Penelope's on the east side, best BLT in, in all of New York City. And um, the bill came and it came down on the table and I grabbed it to pay for it. And she reached across, she's like, no, 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 let me pay. Uh, and I was like, no, 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 I got this. She's like, and she got angry. Uh, and she's like, no, you've gotten the last two, let me pay. And immediately I was like, aha, I've cracked a nut on her. One of her core values in life is fairness and justice. So now let's map it back to her on the court. If you're one of your top values is fairness and justice, and you're someone who's good at what you do, and you're beating other people badly, what do you think that's going to cause you to do on the inside? You're going to feel uncomfortable with that. It's going to happen unconsciously for you. She's not choosing to let that person come back in the end. Unconsciously, she's going to take her foot off. And that's what happened. She felt like she was being unfair to that other person. And so we had one of the best coaching conversations I've ever had, which was on the corner of 29th Street and Lexington Avenue in New York City, where we came outside and I started chatting with her about it. And I said, listen, do you know how unfair you are by allowing someone to get back into the game and them thinking that they're as good as they are when they're not as good. You let your foot off the gas. It's actually very unfair to not beat that person to the best of your ability in that moment because that person walks away and they haven't gotten the full view of just how much further they need to go, how much harder they need to practice, the skills they need to build so that they can get to that level. That was actually you being very unfair to that person by you taking your foot off the pedal. So getting to the question around one of the common things that gets in people's ways, it's their misuse of their values. And I mean, I talk about this, like values are these core things that drive all of us, right? But sometimes it's the way that we describe that value to ourselves, and then how we use it in our different roles in our, in our lives that end up getting in the way. And so that's a super common one that, that traps a lot of people. And that, it seems like that applies on the field of play, but maybe let's say as, as a dad with young kids, it probably wouldn't apply there, right? Like, should, should you let your kids win when, you, when you're playing with them? Or should you, you know, what are your thoughts? Well, I've spoken on a lot of stages. We've actually done, my, my sports company, have done a lot of studies around the developmental levels of young kids. And, uh, you know, there's the toxic bravado male attitude of, oh, my kids are going to know that I'm going to be beating them. It's like, really? The game at this level isn't a zero-sum game of winning and losing. The game at this level is developmental. It's growth. You know, because that's okay. You can beat the crap out of your kids in the game, but here's the hallmark of whether or not you're doing a very good job at it. Do they want to come back and play the game again? Do they want to come back and play that sport again? That's the great measure of whether or not you're a good coach for us. If you're, if you're working with eight-year-old, I mean, I'm going to start coaching my, my two daughters, a soccer team this year. The hallmark of whether or not I was a good coach this year is how many of these kids are excited about coming back and playing soccer again next year. That's my only measurement device. And so kids are massively motivated by learning and growth. So I'm not so focused on whether or not the kids are winning and I'm losing, but are they advancing and getting better? That's, that's, that's my thing. So to your point, and by the way, like I got to know Kobe quite well before he passed away. I was actually in California to go meet with Kobe to install the alter ego method into the Mamba Academy. And then I was going to help Kobe with his mindset stuff. Cause I mean, I was teasing him a bit about his Mamba mentality book and saying that, you know, you, you made a great picture book, but you didn't actually share 
the amazing mindset stuff that you have. So it's going to help them because it's what I do. Like I build mindset training. And he was the same way with, with his daughters, the way that, I mean, Kobe, way that he parented his kids, he wasn't about like going onto the basketball court and destroying his daughter when he was out there playing with her. No, he was about developmentally advancing her skill set. So yeah, there is a way that we can take some of these values and our attitudes and we can carry them over into other roles in our lives and it becomes toxic in another situation. And I want to talk about, I know we mentioned this earlier, but just activating your alter ego with, you know, with a totem or an artifact, if you could define like what those are and, and how to utilize them. Yeah. I mean, the great thing about what you're doing here for everybody that's not, if you haven't read the book or Michael's kind of unpacking sort of how we end up going about building an alter ego for itself. Cause it actually maps to how you ended up building who you are right now. Anyway, you got shaped by a bunch of people when you were before the age of seven, that's typically where we, we end up developing most of our sense of self and who we are. And then we end up starting building skills and, and stuff. And it's the field of play model. And so this final set of uh, steps in this process I talk about in the book is, is employing a totem, an artifact could be a uniform. And the reason is because we as human beings, we add story and narrative to the things that we wear and other people wear. Michael, if you came on the show and you were wearing a white doctor's coat or a white lab coat, immediately in my mind, that's going to trigger a story unconsciously about you. Hardworking, methodical, detailed, most likely as skill sets, successful, oh, very disciplined because in order to get through school, you got to be disciplined. Now, the crazy thing about how the human mind works is if I was to actually put on a white lab coat or doctor's coat, I've just now enclosed my cognitive abilities and traits with whatever story is attached to that white coat. And the Kellogg School of Management did a really good study around this where they brought a bunch of students into a room and um, first group was plain clothes one by one and they gave them what's called a Stroop test. And the Stroop test is just a test that's to measure uh, colorblindness and some other things in the world of optometry and ophthalmology. And you've got a word of a color, so yellow, except it's colored in red or blue. And your job is to actually say the color of the word because our brains actually process words faster than they do the colors. So anyways, they do this test and they measure how many, how fast they did it, how many mistakes that they make. And there's a bunch of words that were on there with different colors and so then they leave and, and then they bring in another group and they hand them a white coat. And this time they tell them to put on this painter's coat. So put on the painter's coat and then we're going to do this test. So they do it, track the data, and then they leave. Next group, hand them the exact same white coat, except this time they tell them it's a doctor's coat or a lab coat and they do the test. Well, what were the results? Well, the results were that the people who were wearing the doctor's coat did it in less than half the time and made less than half the mistakes. Why? because they enclose themselves in the cognitive traits of being careful, methodical, and detailed. All three skills you need to be successful to do a Stroop test. The painter's coat people, what they had actually activated were creative traits, not traits that help you with the Stroop test. Plain clothes people, same low results. This is a natural thing that human beings do. We don't even need to think about it. And this is important for my world because, and this is my problem with a lot of the self-help world or personal development world or leadership world, is they're trying to get people to do things that are not the natural way our brains are wired to work. So that way, that's why it's like, you got to think your way through it. And alter ego is a very natural thing because we did it all as kids. 
we all pretended to be Superman or Batman or Wonder Woman or Black Panther nowadays, or we played house or we played nurse or you played teacher, you played, and it's just your way of developing skills. We do it naturally, playful, creative imagination. And yet we stop doing it because we start looking at people ahead of us and we're like, oh, those 10-year-olds, they seem to take the world a little bit more seriously. And the 10-year-olds are simply looking at the 13-year-olds. 13-year-olds are looking at the 18-year-olds and the 18-year-olds are looking at the adults. And they're all looking at bad models <laughs> of people who haven't figured it actually out. And so it's a creative imagination tool. So when you're building this out, having a totem or an artifact that helps to represent that alter ego within. You know, mine behind me, in the video version of this interview is Superman. And um, Superman is a, a part of my, one of my first alter egos I used in business. It was Superman, Joseph Campbell, and Benjamin Franklin were my three alter egos or my three that have brought together in this one alter ego. And I called him Super Richard. Richard's my actual first name. And so I created Super Richard and that's who was actually going out there and trying to build this business as a fresh-faced 21-year-old who looked like he was 12, very insecure about how young he looked, didn't have a bunch of letters and degrees behind his name, and he didn't have five best-selling books, didn't have any of those things. And it would stop me from making the calls that I needed to make. But Super Richard put on a pair of glasses, non-prescription fake glasses that I got at Lens Crafters in West Edmonton Mall, which was the largest mall in the world at the time in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, where I lived before I moved off around the world. And that's who got on those calls was Super Richard. And it employed one of the great, great tools in psychology, disassociation. I disassociated from my own trauma, disassociated from my own narrative about what Todd can go and do. But Super Richard, powered by Superman, Joseph Campbell, and Benjamin Franklin, he could do a lot of stuff. And I used those glasses as my totem, my artifact, or my uniform to step into this new identity. and. Is that me being fake? No. The other version of me that wasn't making the calls was being actually fake because I had the capabilities, but I wasn't taking the action. And uh, there's this great story that just came out. You're familiar with the act or the uh, singer Halsey. Mm -hmm. So Halsey had this great interview done about 14 months ago about her own rise to fame. And, and she said that, uh, and her real name is Ashley. She said that um, she created her alter ego Halsey because Ashley could have never gone and done what Halsey went and did. She wanted to go and do it, but she couldn't have ever done it. Not with the story that she had, not with the association she had about what the, she thought that she could go do, but Halsey could go and do it. And if you actually look at the word Halsey, it's simply an, an anagram of Ashley. All she did was she just flipped around a couple of the words in her name. So whether it's Super Richard or whether it's Halsey or whether it's Beyonce using Sasha Fierce or David Goggins using Goggins or... Martin Luther King, who used an alter ego to write all of his speeches, what he called his distinguished self, where he wore a pair of glasses just like me and sat down and wrote his speeches. And that's how he employed the alter ego. He didn't use it to go out on stage. He used it to write the speeches because he didn't want his own insecurities to get in the way of the message that he needed to write in order to lead a movement of nonviolent action towards equality for a group of people. So totems and artifacts, super powerful part of the whole process. And as we come to a close, this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, Todd, what does being a game changer mean to you? Game changer is someone who can leave something better than it was. You're in a game and something needs to happen. You need to make that final goal with eight seconds left. You need to make that final sale before the final bell rings at the end of the month in order to hit the numbers. 
that's a game changer. They leave something better than it was. It was something at this point. And then the game changer came in and it all changed because of that person. So you're leaving something better than it was. You're someone who knows how to transform something. That's a game changer. I want to give a huge thank you to Todd Herman for taking the time to speak with us today. You know, what particularly resonated for me was when Todd said that we all have our own stories and narratives, but they do not define who we are or who we become. By channeling an alter ego, leaders can set themselves up to become more resilient, creative, confident, and courageous. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could share the podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner who you believe would benefit. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on our interview with Todd Herman, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. And join us next time and we'll be speaking with the managing partner of Ward Law Group, Greg Ward. Be yourself. The truth is so many of us are trying to project this strength, right? We want to be you know, your aggressive lawyer or your strong lawyer, or we're going to kick butt or we're going to do all this stuff. The truth is to be a good lawyer, you have to have some trauma, right? You've got to be able to understand and relate to your client's stories. And so you've got to be able to understand that trauma and know what they go through. That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. <laughs>